Well, the, the very first thing I did on this sort of journey was I went to the top of the Greenland Ice Sheet, which is a kind of astonishing place to go under any circumstances. You know, you, people sort of see Greenland on the map, and sometimes you fly over the southern part of Greenland if you're flying to Europe, and you see this spectacular place and this, you know, whiteness and these black mountains. But when you're up there on the top of 10,000 feet of ice, then the way the world is put together and the sort of contingency of that, that, you know, Greenland is still glaciated. When you see that, um, your your view of the world does sort of tilt and you realize there the way the world is now it, it's not the way it's always been and it's not the way it's going to be um and there are a lot a lot of ramifications for, for that 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 flow from that that was the voice of pulitzer prize winning journalist and author elizabeth colbert On today's episode of the show, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth about her most recent book, Under a White Sky, as well as her extensive reporting on the climate crisis and the extinction crisis. I conducted this interview alongside fellow Wildlands Collective filmmaker Kristen Tiesch, who convinced me to reach out to Elizabeth for this interview and is something of an Elizabeth Colbert superfan. We need to get a screenshot. Um, so, Matt, would you do the honors? I'm gonna I'm gonna hold up your books. That was Kristen ensuring that we had documentation of our conversation with the woman who inspired her to produce and direct a feature film about bat conservation and the threat of white nose syndrome called The Invisible Mammal. Kristen has been working on this film for almost five years now, and it all began when she read Elizabeth Colbert's article in The New Yorker about a mysterious die-off of bats in a cave in upstate New York. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation about extinction, the climate crisis, geoengineering, and other fairly depressing topics. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky, and this is Earth to Humans. the folks behind the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Serena, and I'm joined by my co-host Matt Podolsky and Hannah Mulvaney here. Welcome, guys. Nice to see you. <laughs> you too. Yeah, good to see you both. It feels like ages because I had a, a week off. Yeah, no, and I, I feel like we all had a little bit of a week off this last week. I was sick. You were traveling. Matt was traveling, you know, so I feel like you know, it's been a couple of weeks and I missed your faces. <laughs> yeah. Matt, I just want you to kind of like throw us into it. Like what it, what is our upcoming episode about? Um, remind us who your guest is, the book that they wrote and a little bit about them. So uh, this episode uh, features an interview with Elizabeth Colbert, 
who is uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist uh, who wrote The Sixth Extinction, which was ringing the alarm bells surrounding the extinction crisis and obviously the connections between the extinction crisis and the climate crisis. Um, Elizabeth Colbert has been covering uh, the climate crisis for The New Yorker uh, for a long time. Um, And her most recent book is called Under a White Sky. And it's it's sort of like like the logical follow up to a lot of her climate reporting and her reporting on the extinction crisis um, in that. I mean, the subtitle is The Nature of the Future. And so she's sort of analyzing um, like how it is that humans have been and will continue into the future to adapt natural landscapes. Um, So there's like several very long sections about different like geoengineering strategies that have been proposed. And she's sort of making the argument in the book that like, you know, you, you can have these arguments about like the pros and cons of different geoengineering tactics, but because of where we are in the climate crisis, they're going to happen no matter what, mm-hmm. right? It's just a question of how they happen and 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 how soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like sort of re- like really in depth analysis uh, and and interviews with you know uh, lots of experts on carbon capture and the idea of like seeding um, the atmosphere with uh, like reflective particles um, to reflect uh, sunlight back. Uh, And that is what blew my mind when you were telling me about this book, because that's where the title of the book comes from. And it's sort of like the thought of some of these geoengineering strategies completely changing like our present worldview. So like with with that particular example, you know, like uh, trying to reflect back some of that uh, sunlight that's hitting the earth. Um, would require, you know, reflective particle particulates in the atmosphere, which would turn our sky from blue to white. And, and like thinking about generations that might grow up not knowing what a blue sky ever even looked like, you know, like that could become, um, you know, normalcy for a future generation. And like that to me was like, wow, that... I want to hear more about that, you know, like that, that's fascinating and also really terrifying. So um, it's, I'm really, really excited to hear this conversation. And um, yeah, Elizabeth Colbert, legend. Um, her books are amazing. Um, but yeah, no, thank, thanks for bringing this one to us, Matt. My name is Elizabeth Colbert, and I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. Uh, I've written a few books, uh, the latest of which is called Under a White Sky, and another which was, which is called The Sixth Extinction. I live in Western Massachusetts. Um, I'm a visiting fellow at the Center for Environmental Studies at Lynx College. And that probably covers enough territory. 
So, um, so Elizabeth, when Matt and I were reviewing your bio in the book sleeve of Under White Sky, we were curious about what set you on your climate journey. When and how did you decide in your career that the, that the climate and biodiversity crises were the topics you would focus on? Well, it's, it's kind of a, a, a long, <laughs> it's kind of a long story. The short version, I'll just give you the short version was that I left the times where I had been covering politics, really mainly New York state and, and, and national politics for, for, for a while. Um, and I went to the New Yorker and I was, I was supposed to also write about politics. I did write about politics, but this was right at the time when George W. Bush was elected. And one of the first things that he did, your older readers, older listeners may recall, was he pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Protocol. And um, he, and and that was, you know, greeted with mixed um, views, obviously, at the time. And I had this thought, like, well, we should really know, we should really, you know, some people were saying climate change was the biggest deal in the world, and some people were poo-pooing it, obviously. And there was this, this you know, debate, which we now retrospectively realize that a lot of it was, was manufactured. Um, but I had got this idea uh, that I, you know, had just gone to work at The New Yorker. It was a publication that, you know, has devoted many pages to the great issues of our times that I was going to solve this question, settle this question once and for all, you know, was climate change the biggest deal uh, in the world or not? And I proposed to David Remnick, who was the editor of The New Yorker and still is the editor of The New Yorker, um, a piece on climate change in the Arctic, because at that point, you really had to go to the Arctic to really see clear signs of climate change. And he came back and said to me, well, if, if this is true, if this is such a big deal, why don't you do a three-part series on climate change. And I thought about it for a while, and I, I really didn't have the other two parts in my head, but I felt like I couldn't pass up that opportunity. So I said, okay, uh, you give me a year, and I'll give you a three-part series on climate change. And that's what happened. And I uh, took a year. It was often filled with panic, um, but I did write a three-part series on climate change. And as anyone who has written about climate change or, you know, just even thought about it for a long time realizes or studies it, you know, it sort of takes over your life. You can't not, you can't unknow then what you know. And so it sort of took over my own career and other parts of my life as well. So I remember the moment when I personally became captivated by your writing, and I was reading an article that you wrote in the t in 2009 for the New Yorker about how frogs and bats were in trouble. And having visited Panama in 2007 and El Valle in particular, and having had my own bat experience um, in upstate New York in 1988, that article had an enormous emotional impact on me. In fact, your article, as Matt said earlier, inspired me to make a documentary about bats and white nose syndrome and the amazing scientists that are working to save little brown bats from extinction. So I wanted to ask you, what, 
what drew you to focus a chapter in your book, The Sixth Extinction, on bats? And because to most people, they're not the most charismatic of creatures. That's that story that you read back in 2009, which was really the sort of became the beginnings of a book. Um, you know, it was a weird confluence of events. I had um, been looking for a way to write about what had already been termed the amphibian crisis. This was in, in so, you know, when I'm writing it, it's 2008, 2009. And that had been known about for a while, more than a decade, people had been seeing this, you know, terrible amphibian die off many species, you know, crashing, some crashing all the way to extinction. And um, weirdly, sort of just at the moment when I came up with a way that I, to write about it, uh, I, um, this weird bat die off was noted, you know, literally in my backyard. I live about an hour and 15 minutes from the cave where the first, you know, bat, massive bat mortality was noted um, back in 2007. And that story just, you know, kept ballooning. It was a classic um, case of a novel pathogen, you know, COVID-like, except that you know, bats don't fly around the world in airplanes, they only fly with their wings. So it, it was expanding, you know, spreading in, in what's called a classic bullseye pattern. So the center was in upstate New York, and then it was spreading. And then it hit Massachusetts, where I live very, very fast this is the next year. Um, so it was sort of these two stories coming together, an amphibian dive, a bat dive, what, and both, you know, weirdly enough, weirdly, and people have never quite you know, there's no exact answer for this, why they're both, they're both fungal pathogens that are causing, you know, massive mortality. They clearly are uh, related to the way humans move around the world and move species around the world, move pathogens around the world. Um, although the exact way that happened has still never been solved for either case. <laughs> um, but it seemed to me a way to really illustrate, you know, everyone's aware or should be aware, you know, that we're in a massive biodiversity crisis. So a word that doesn't really, you know, doesn't, doesn't sing a phrase that doesn't sing, but this was just an absolute crash that people could see right around them. You know, I could see right literally in my backyard and that really uh, prompted me to you know, get out there. It was, you know, simply a great story, you know, the way journalists always sees on a good story. Uh, but it also seemed to be a, an avenue into this much, 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 you know, bigger story. Something that struck me was that, you know, bats are like this underdog species. Um, so I wanted to ask you what draws you to tell stories about underdog species like bats or like the devil's hole put Pupfish. And by the way, that chapter in Under a, White, Under a White Sky drew me in totally completely. I felt like I was there in the desert cavern, <laughs> you know, with that pool of water. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, corny or whatever, but, you know, the basic idea, which um, there's a character, you know, in, the, in that chapter from Under a White Sky, which is about the devil's whole pupfish, which is this 
very, very endangered, you know, fish that lives only in one single pool in the middle of the desert um, in Nevada. Um, and there's a guy, a character in that um, chapter, he recently died. He is, his name is Phil Pister, and he was a fisheries biologist, and he himself literally saved a species of pupfish, not the devil's whole pupfish, another pupfish who's also whose only home was drying up. And he literally, you know, stuck a bunch in a pail and uh, carted them to safety. And people would ask him, um, what good are pupfish? You know, he was devoting his life to these tiny little fish that are, you know, you couldn't even make, you know, a sandwich out of them. Um, and he, his answer was, what good are you? And that um, really, um, I think, sums things up. And, you know, the idea that every species has value, that every, every species is, is also simply fascinating. You know, every species is an answer to, you know, the great evolutionary conundrum of how to survive on planet Earth. So, you know, while I will be the first to admit that, you know, it's, it's hard to you know, cuddle up with a nematode or a um, fungus. I think whenever I go out with scientists who are very well, um, you know, have deep knowledge of any species, any group of organisms, you know, you learn unbelievably fascinating things and you realize that, you know, Phil Pister's, you know, what good are you? has has a very profound significance that there are many, many things, you know, that a nematode can do that we can't do. And we should be, uh, at the very least, as we, you know, tear through the biosphere, uh, cognizant of what we're doing, what we're losing. So when we're thinking about these two groups of animals, I mean, the pupfishes and the bats, in particular, they're species that have already experienced catastrophic declines and are like really directly facing extinction threats. And certainly the biologists that you profiled in Under a White Sky are driven to take extreme measures, right? And I think I think a, a lot of those bi biologists would acknowledge that they're no longer trying to do restoration. They're no longer trying to restore ecosystems to like some point in the past. However, for lots, I think for most species and most ecosystems and most biologists, there's still at this stage a lot of hesitation and a lot of just reluctance to abandon this idea of restoring landscapes to past conditions. I guess I wonder if you've experienced that, right? Because that's something that I experience quite frequently and it, it it's frustrating, right? It's almost like unless you're working on a species that is like directly facing extinction, it's really hard to find folks where it feels like they're recognizing the true scale of the crisis that we're in and like the near impossibility of doing restoration. Like even if you're even if you can successfully restore something now, is it going to survive the next decade or five? Well, you know, one of the reasons um, that we have this pattern, you know, that the devil's whole pupfish exemplifies and the devil's whole pupfish um, was one of the first species listed under the Endangered Species Act. And the Endangered Species Act also, you know, for, for better or worse, I am, you know, not critical of the Endangered Species Act. It's the best thing that we have. 
but it functions in a certain way. And the way it functions is, you know, the fish and wildlife, you know, lists you often nowadays under duress. Um, and they, they have criteria for listing you and the criteria, basically you're headed towards extinction. And then at that point, they are obligated by law to come up with a recovery plan. Before that, they are not obligated to do that. So, you know, any sort of sentient being would say, well, you really shouldn't wait until a species is on the edge of extinction before you try to save it. That's kind of the worst time <laughs> to try to save a species. That's really counterproductive. But that's the way the law was written. And that is what we are stuck with. And many um, people obviously would like to go in and there is talk of of actually, there's some bipartisan talk of, of a bill that's supposed to kind of address some of these these issues and look at more, you know, conservation at an earlier stage. It has not yet managed to get to the floor. I don't know. I haven't followed it closely enough to know if there's any hope for this legislative session. Um, but no one really wants to revisit the Endangered Species Act because of the fear that it will be destroyed. It won't be strengthened. It will be destroyed. So that's what you're left with. And the Devil's Hole Pupfish actually are a really interesting case of how the act works because the Devil's Hole Pupfish, as far as we know, it always only existed in Devil's Hole. You know, we don't know of it existing anywhere else. Um, under the Endangered Species Act, even if you were to restore a robust population at Devil's Hole, you know, something that would be, has proved extremely difficult, that would not be sufficient. Under the Endangered Species Act, you would have to have a backup population because even if the species started out just as one population, very few species do start out that way, but there's no such thing under the Endangered Species Act of a recovered species that only has one population. So that's an interesting you know, sort of irony. There was an article that you wrote in uh, 20, uh, November 2022 in The New Yorker called A Vast Experiment, The Climate Crisis from A to Z, in which you write about climate stories for each letter of the alphabet. And there were two letters that particularly stuck with me. Uh, first, for the letter D, you wrote two sentences. Despair is unproductive. It's also a sin. Can we take a few minutes to unpack that? Well, the the point of that article was to really explore, try to explore this, you know, multi, multifaceted problem from a lot of different angles. You know, you, you, we tend to read about climate change in this sort of siloed, you know, way. There's a new report that says, ah, you know, everything is terrible or, or the ice sheets are melting or, you know, whatever, whatever you name it. And then there'll be another report that says, oh, someone just invented, you know, something for, you know, a new battery that's going to save the world. You know, how many times have we read, is this going to save the world? You know, and my um, goal was to really take on both of those, um, you know, the, the, try to get it at, at the scale and scope of the problem and, you know, both the reasons that, for, for optimism and the reasons for despair. And despair is a pretty, so the beginning of the piece really leads you, you know, straight to despair. We have really done nothing for the last 30 years. We've known about the problem. The warnings get starker and starker and our emissions keep going up. 
they don't go, it's not just that they have, we haven't reached net zero, they don't even go down, you know, uh, globally. And so the problem is just, you know, we're just keep digging, you know, the first rule, you know, stop the hole, stop digging the hole. We have not even, you know, listened to the first rule. So you very quickly get to, well, this is, you know, desperate, uh, desperate situation. So D was naturally sort of despair. And what is there to say about that? Except, well, you have to go on anyway, you know, um, and that was sort of so then, you know, then we then we, we go on, we sort of get to E, uh, and we hit a more upbeat note, and, you know, we follow that for a while. So that the, the piece has a sort of up and down, you know, rhythm that I was trying to achieve. There was another um, letter that stuck with me. This one actually more powerful, and that was the, the, the letter N. Um, so as a filmmaker and storyteller, I'm always thinking about narrative, you know, which was your letter N. And so I loved what you wrote. And I'll quote you right now for our listeners. Um, uh, so Elizabeth wrote, quote, positive stories can be self-fulfilling. People who believe in a brighter future are more likely to put in the effort required to achieve it. When they put in that effort, they make discoveries that hasten progress. Along the way, they build communities that make positive change possible. So I have to think that so many of the people that you've met through your journalism, whether it's pupfish biologists or direct air capture engineers, these must be the types of folks who believe in a brighter future. And I have to ask you, are you one of those people who believe in a brighter future? And if so, could you explain why? Well, that's a pretty easy one. Um, no, I don't think the future is going to be brighter than the past. I think that's, you know, self-evidently not true. Um, you know, the forest fire, the recent forest fires being just, you know, one of a, you know, gazillion examples that we could all uh, tick off. And the problem with climate change, which, you know, I hope comes through by the time we get to Z in that, um, piece is that it is not, uh, it's not a typical problem that humanity has faced. It's not the kind of problem, you know, like a war, you know, we could look at the war in Ukraine. This is, you know, terrible, a total disaster, a humanitarian disaster, an environmental disaster, a moral disaster, just on every, um, front a disaster. But if they stop fighting, you know, the war would be over. <laughs> um, that wouldn't make up for what has happened and for the many people who have been killed, but it would be over and they could start to rebuild. Climate change is not going to end that way. There's not going to be any ending to climate change. As, for, as long as any of us is alive, as long as our kids are alive, as long as our kids' kids are going to be alive, uh, the problem is going to be getting worse. Um, and that is true, unfortunately, um, pretty much no matter what we do, but certainly it's true, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse if we continue on our current path. If we were to stop emitting carbon tomorrow, then air temperatures would stabilize, land temperatures would stabilize, but the ocean would continue to warm, we'd continue to melt the ice caps, we would continue to have major, major change um, that we would have to, to grapple with. And the idea that somehow it's all going to have a, get wrapped up in a neat bow and, you know, it's going to get better, I think is pretty delusional. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly 
Couldn't argue with that. And <laughs> I mean, I, 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 but there's this dichotomy, right? Like, and, and, you know, to a certain extent, I think in your writing, but it's like all pervasive, like everywhere that you would read about the climate crisis, I think you see this dichotomy where, you know, it's, it feels like we've clearly passed the point of no return with regard to the climate crisis, yet we're being told we can't despair and give up. Um, and it feels like climate activists are being asked to lie to themselves or like find a way of conjuring up this like better future. Um, you know, like what, like what would you say to folks like that? I mean, like, do we need, do we need like climate crisis response trained psychiatrists and psychologists? Like, should that be a part of like, you know, climate infrastructure legislation? Well, there's, there's two things I would say to that, that, question. The first is, you know, you know, I will stand by, you know, despair is unproductive. It's also a sin. I mean, it is unproductive. We, unless, you know, we're going to commit, you know, sort of universal Harry Carey, um, you know, we're going to keep on living on this planet and we're going to, um, we ought to do the best we can to minimize the damage. I think that that, you know, it should be self-evident. Um, and, but the problem that we're faced with is that our, our politics and our, our culture a whole, you know, we can go into consumer culture and advertising culture and TikTok culture and all of that is so um, geared toward, you know, you should be happy, you should be having fun, um, you should be buying this shit, um, that we can't get our minds around really the fact that we have to act responsibly, even though, you know, things are not going to end happily here, there, there, there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering, but we still have to try to do the best we can. And that message is, you know, a political non-starter. It's just completely, you know, dead. And it's why even, it's why all of these climate groups, now I will say there are some people you know, out there, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, whom I have a tremendous admiration for, you know, that that's basically, you know, a, a, a Greta-esque message where this is not going to end happily, but we still have to get out there and, and, and do it. Um, but in, in the U.S. in particular, I think we have such a kind of, um, you know, our politics are such that saying that, you know, that would just be, so you have to wrap it in this present, it, you know, wrap it with this shiny kind of, well, it's not just going to be, you know, we're not just going to, you know, solve climate change, you know, it's all going to get better. Well, you know, unfortunately, um, that becomes harder and harder, a harder and harder message to uh, purvey. Um, but I think that all the big environmental groups, all the big, you know, sort of climate groups get, get forced into that false position. And I, I don't, I'm not critical of them. I, I don't see the options from a political perspective, but unfortunately from a, you know, geophysical perspective, it's just not true. This reminds me of a conversation I had with my, with my dad um, this past weekend on Father's Day. It was definitely a conversation stopper. I don't know how we, we moved into committed carbon, but I was trying to explain to my dad 
that like committed carbon was a thing and that the the future when I was his age was going to look really bad and bleak and it, it was it was not going to be good times <laughs> and he immediately just said let's change the topic <laughs> so i don't know like i mean do you do you go to parties and often um <laughs> often bring up a conversation stopper like that well i i don't i mean i want to say that and you know a lot of people have have talked about this and you know wrestled with it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like going to a party and saying, well, you know, everyone here in this room is, is going to die one day. You know, that's just not something that we, um, that's generally considered polite. Um, it's true. You know, everyone in this room is going to die one day. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that human beings generally say to each other. And, you know, ditto when I go to a party, I don't say, well, you know, the future looks really bleak, looks really bleak for your kids. You know, I don't, I don't, sort of start the conversation that way. Um, you know, but if people ask me the way you all are asking me, or if my friends ask me, you know, what do I think? I, you know, am pretty, you know, impolitely honest and say, I think, you know, we're in a very, very bad situation. And I have kids and I feel very, very bad about that. Um, but, you know, would it help if we all run around saying, you know, we're doomed and we're screwed, you know, probably not. So I, I don't think that if I thought that we're actually, you know, going to change the conversation and motivate people more, you know, maybe I would, would do it more. But I, I actually, because when you do say that, as you say, the reaction is usually, oh, well, let's change the conversation. Let's change the topic. <laughs> uh, what'd you have for dinner, you know, yesterday or, you know, how it's the last good movie that you saw. So, um, I don't have the answers here. You know, that's, you know, one of the luxuries of being a journalist. You know, I, I have the luxury of saying, look, these are the facts as best as I can ascertain. Um, and they're grim. Um, and if you don't like them, you know, don't blame me. Don't shoot the messenger. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so on the subject of darker narratives. Um, I recently, I recently binged the Apple TV series extrapolations, uh, which is, uh, for our listeners, the Scott C. Burns cli-fi series that paints a rather dystopian picture of the not so distant future in an era of climate catastrophe with humans trying to survive extreme heat and flooding and the majority of animal species extinct or on the verge of extinction. And when I read about Scott C. Burns's process in creating this series, I read that you were actually one of his climate science advisors. Uh, could you tell me about your experience, how you got involved in extrapolations and some of the challenges you may have faced shifting from nonfiction storytelling to climate fiction? Well, I want to say I, I have sort of... Um been in touch with Scott. I've never met him personally um, for for several years, and he's been very um, generous to me. And I'm a big fan of his work. You know, he's um, the person you know produced, I guess, writer, person who wrote and uh, Contagion, uh, which you know everyone watched or rewatched during COVID. Really talented guy. Anyway, um, and he just asked me, would I? Um, give some advice to the writers in the writer's room, you know, some 
sort of factual perspective. And he really, um, you know, I give him a lot of credit. He really wanted the series to be as scientifically accurate as possible, which, you know, was complicated given that it was fiction um, and moving into the future. Um, so I really just, um, I was not responsible for any of the, you know, storylines or story ideas. I just um, talked to people in the writer's room and I actually also uh, talked to some of the actors when they um, had issues or questions about, you know, how realistic something, something was. And um, I'm not sure I'm supposed to you know, divulge exactly who that was, but, you know, some, some people had concerns or questions and, you know, I spent some time zooming with them and talking through some of these issues. So that was really my role. It was not coming up with, you know, plots, although I, 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 I think they did a great job in, in doing that. Yeah, it was, it was, I felt, you know, also that it was pretty realistic, you know, in terms of what I've read, you know, about climate science and what the predictions have been. Um, if, if we continue as, you know, business as usual. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, um, so in part two of Under a White Sky, that focuses on atmospheric geoengineering and the inevitability that humans will have to intervene in drastic ways to prevent extreme heat events. And Matt and I discussed how a situation like this was, was portrayed in extrapolations and also in the cli-fi novel Ministry for the Future. So whereas extrapolations depicts the deployment of atmospheric geoengineering as an act of eco-terrorism, eco uh, Ministry for the Future depicts it as a as a nation breaking an international accord to protect their own citizens. And in your book, it's presented as what I see as like a necessary piece of the climate solution puzzle that will eventually need to be deployed, but, uh, but developed now and tested now in order to be ready to be deployed properly. So what do you say to people who typically describe atmospheric climate engineering as a climate Hail Mary pass. Well, I, I do want to push back on that a little bit because I, I, I think that the book Under White Sky is really about this tendency that we have to reach for these technological solutions, you know, when because of our inability to reach either either political solutions or you know, just stop what we're doing when we know what we're doing is like really dangerous. We just continue to do it and hope that some technology will come along, you know, to save us. And the beginning of the book starts with, you know, things we're already doing um, on, in that regard. And then it moves into the sort of more speculative realm. And geoengineering is the ultimate example of that. Well, we can't stop, you know, emitting carbon or we can't stop, you know, screwing ourselves over. And even if we did stop, you know, we're screwed as we discussed. Um, so there's got to be this technology out there that's going to save us. Um, now I'm, you know, rather skeptical of that. So I, I in, you know, my own uh, personal view, but, but I do did in the book, you know, definitely give voice. And I think there are a lot of very smart people who say, uh, you know, we do not have the luxury of not looking at this. And there are a lot of other very smart people who will say 
that is the worst possible thing that just licenses more carbon emissions if people think that this is even remotely possible. Anyway, we can go on and on. But I will tell you, you know, and I would bet a lot of money on this. <laughs> if anyone wants to take the bet, uh, we will only be hearing more and more about geoengineering. We are going to start seeing experiments on it because we have gotten ourselves into a very, very bad place. And the beginning of, you know, the Ministry for the Future, where India is experiencing a terrible heat wave and they unilaterally um, geoengineer, you know, it's not, in my view, geopolitically the most realistic um, scenario because I don't think one country could unilaterally do it if other countries really didn't want them to. But it does raise this other side of, of the coin, which is, or that, that's a mixed metaphor, but anyway, which is, um, you know, what are your alternatives? You name me an alternative. When that heat wave comes, that is going to kill millions of people. And that is not, you know, very far over the horizon, quite possibly. What are your alternatives? Um, so I think that, um, I can see the merits on both sides of that argument, but I would not personally say that I believe that geoengineering, I'm not even sure geoengineering is possible. <laughs> um, so I would not say that I believe that, you know, we should be, we should deploy it. Certainly not. Um, I think that some very, very smart people who I interviewed made the point, And I think it's a reasonable point. Look, it's not something you can do from one day to the next. It's something that you really would like to know the ramifications of before, you know, you deploy it. Um, and that is a 30-year research project. So if you think that things are going to look pretty bad in 2060, which is not at all unlikely, you know, then you better start that research effort now. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Talking specifically about, you know, this one certain type of geoengineering, which is like seeding the atmosphere with reflective particles, um, which like replicates what happens when we have enormous um, volcanic explosions. So we have like, you know, some, we, we can look back at the past at these historic events and, and have some understanding of the effect that's going to have on the global climate. Um, and it's obviously extremely controversial. I think you do a great job of laying out the pros and cons. And I like, after reading the book, my perspective, you know, was was not like oh elizabeth colbert believes we should do this or doesn't believe we should do this but this is inevitable it's almost certainly going to happen so we have to deal with like we have to start come to terms with the you know the negative consequences um and like you called your book under a white sky and <laughs> i wonder if you can talk about the concept of the white sky um because like for some for some reason, like the weight of this didn't hit me until I connected it to the title of the book, um, and 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 I brought this up. I was like chatting with my wife about this as well, and when I explained the white, like she was willing to sit there and listen about all the details of geoengineering and the, you know the reflective particles and the pros and cons of it. But when I explained to her that once this happens, the sky will no longer be, be blue, she was like, "I don't want to hear anymore." Yeah, and, you know, it doesn't become clear why the book is called that until the very end. Um, and that was, you know, debated with my publisher whether that was a good idea or not. But I thought it was just very evocative, you know, of this world that we're 
moving into. Now, you know, look, there's all sorts of things that people said, um, you know, I, I don't want to live this way, right? I don't want to live, um, you know, with uh, cars zooming by and I don't want to, you know, that's that. I don't want to live with, you know, telephone wires. I don't want to live, a- anyway, at every, you could argue with every, you know, people might say with every technological advance, you know, they're, you know, I don't want to live with, um, you know, the Luddites. I don't want to live with, you know, power looms that are doing the weaving, you know. Um, so, you know, people, you know, go down that slippery slope. And that is really, <laughs> that was one of the themes of the book, you know. But um, if you were to do so with solar geoengineering, um, you would, you know, sprinkle some kind of uh, reflective particles in the stratosphere and you would um, get more reflected sunlight. Sunlight would be reflected back more sunlight would be reflected back to space. Um, and, you know, people have just done calculations about what that would do to the, you know, sort of spectrum of light that we get. And their calculations have indicated that the sky would be whiter. I should say it wouldn't be, you know, pure white, but it would be like, um, you know, if you are in, you know, New York City or, you know, New Delhi or whatever, even on a, on a good day, you know, you're not seeing a clear blue sky. So we are kind of used to that already. Um, but that would be true everywhere, even in, you know, the most, you know, quote unquote, unpolluted place you could get to, we would be changing the entire stratosphere. Now, another thing you should say about, I should say about geoengineering is it's, it's, you know, eminently reversible. That's, that's one of the, you know, problems with it. it it's, these particles um, don't, no one expects unless they could engineer some really something very, very clever, you know, just like after a volcano, these things eventually drop out and um, after a year or two. So you'd have to constantly replenish the supply if you were to keep the effect. And if you were to keep pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, you'd have to put more and more reflective particles into the stratosphere to have the same impact. Um, and the sky would get whiter and whiter. Um, but, but if you stop doing it, you know, you could get blue skies again. You would also get uh, this phenomenon that already has a name. It's called termination shock, which is that when you stop doing it, um, all the heat that was sort of masked would suddenly manifest itself and you get this, you know, sudden increase in global temperatures. Sounds like withdrawal yeah it's a lot like it's a lot like withdrawal and it's often compared to a drug addiction yes you would be basically starting a big you know global heroin addiction you're trying to separate out like like sort of your up uh, you know your opinion on the matter of like is this a good thing or this is a bad thing from the facts and and the reality of like what what may happen um i mean do you, like after going through this research process and interviewing all these experts on the topic, like, do you think this is inevitable? I don't think it's inevitable. As I say, I don't even know if it will work. Um, So I don't think that there's inevitability yet. I think it is more likely than not that we are going to continue to pursue it. I don't think it's going to, to be dropped um, either until someone proves that it can't be done or that the negative sort of side effects outweigh the potential benefits. And then 
you know, then you're going to, then you are going to get a lot of debate. I mean, one of the huge questions that hangs over geoengineering besides whether it's possible, you know, there's whether it's possible, whether it's a good idea, and then whether it's a good idea for whom. And they do are going to get potentially into the situation. And this is going to be very, very difficult to adjudicate because this is all going to be based on modeling until you, you actually do it, you know, on a global scale. It's possible that um, some regions will benefit and some regions will suffer. You know, you change rainfall patterns. Um, and then you have these sort of net benefit questions. Now, when you talk to the modelers, they will also point out, and it's important to point out, it's not like you can say, well, let's compare it to ideal circumstances or let's even compare it to the climate of today. It's let's compare it to the climate of 30 years from now with geoengineering or without geoengineering. Many, many people are going to suffer uh, without geoengineering. So you have to look at sort of the net net effects. But it is entirely possible that you would learn or be reasonably confident um, that some parts of the world will really benefit from it. And some parts, you know, it'll be a wash, let's say, or some parts will suffer. And then you are faced with the really, really difficult geopolitical question. Um, I wanted to ask it also about uh, direct air capture. And this is like another one of these like really controversial um, solutions, you know, that uh, that climate, climate scientists and technologists, you know, have come up with to help solve our the, the crisis that we're in, and maybe, you know, maybe prevent, you know, the the need to geoengineer. You know, maybe this is like a precursor. Um, what is your, you know, after all the research that you did and um, the people that you've met who you wrote about um, that are involved in direct air capture, you know, what's your take? Is this is this another one of these kind of like Hail Mary passes or, you know, is it definitely like a, a, a piece of the climate solution puzzle? Well, direct air capture is a, is a, is a, is a complicated one. Um, you know, a lot of these models that, you know, tell us, well, we still have some time to avoid, you know, complete disaster. They have a lot of car, what's called carbon removal, you know, already built into them. We're going to not just, you know, radically reduce our emissions, then we're going to start actually drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. And there are a bunch of different ways you could theoretically do that. And they all suffer uh, from the same problem, which is scaling them up. And, you know, carbon dioxide removal is is possible. I know I visited this plant in Iceland. I do pay money every month to have, you know, some carbon dioxide, you know, removed from the atmosphere and buried deep underground in Iceland. Um, it does work. It's, it's, you know, pretty basic, you know, chemistry. Um, it's, you know, how you can survive on a submarine. You can suck CO2 out of the air. That's why, you know, the sailors don't all um, faint, you know, from excess CO2. Um, but it's, it has, it requires energy. It's not something that just happens spontaneously. Um, and, you know, then you have the crazy calculation of, well, should we really be using energy on that when the whole problem is, 
you know, that we're burning fossil fuels to make energy. So, you know, then it becomes this thing of like, well, in the future, we're going to have so much excess solar and wind, you know, we can use it for that. And, you know, are these things true? You know, possibly, possibly has that, but to count on these things. And that was once again, one of the themes of Under a White Sky, that we, we count on these solutions sort of before we have them. And so you have, you've got, we've gotten ourselves into a situation where carbon removal is, you know, at, at vast scales is sort of essential, but we don't really know how to do it. There's a lot of people who say, well, we already have these, you know, these devices that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and they're called trees. So why aren't we just planting more trees? Well, planting more trees is a good idea. I, I'm all in favor of planting more trees, but there's a couple problems with trees or there are many problems with trees. I mean, first of all, um, you know, they only take up carbon when they're alive, if they store it, then they die, then they give it back, uh, they rot. So, you know, that's very hard to get around. Some people have proposed, well, we should, I mean, this is the ultimate, you know, uh, this is a very popular idea. It just doesn't actually exist in practice. We're going to grow a lot of trees. We're going to burn them. We're going to get the energy and then we're going to, capture the carbon emissions and force them underground. So we're going to get this sort of win, win, win. So that's one possibility. Then there's the, we'll grow trees and we'll cut them down and we'll, you know, dump them in the ocean where they won't rot. I mean, so there's all sorts of ideas out there, but, you know, trees take up space. What are we actually doing? We're actually continuing to cut down, you know, forests. <laughs> um, and also trees burn. We're seeing that. So we could say, well, we could you know, we should be planting more trees. In fact, you know, obviously we're losing forests to these massive forest fires. So, you know, the easy answer is yes, we should be planting more trees. But the important point, I do want to make this point, the idea that we're going to counteract our emissions by planting trees is not true, could not be done, you know, with the amount of arable land on the planet. The numbers just don't add up. Could we make a dent in things? Could we have a positive impact? Yes, but we could not continue on our merry way, you know, emitting 40 billion tons of CO2 every year and suck it up with a bunch of trees. That ain't happening. I would, um, you know, I'm not an economist, but I would do what economists tell us we should do, which is impose a carbon tax and impose carbon duties at our borders. And I think that would be the most efficient way to change behavior and change the way we generate energy. Now, would that solve all our problems? You know, no. But I think it would be the best first step that we could take. Well, I want to say that if if you if you were running for president of the world, I would definitely vote for you. <laughs> Thank you. I can I can guarantee you I will not be running for president. Of the world. Yeah, but but thank you. Thank you. It's nice to know. It's like um it's like the famous Adlai Stevenson quote, you know, or some some woman came up to him and said, "Oh, you have every you have every thinking person's vote. And he said, oh, thank you, but I need a majority. So, um, <laughs> <that's>... <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good win, good win. That was our conversation with journalist and author Elizabeth Colbert. We have links to some of the articles mentioned in the interview posted on our website over at earthtohumanspod.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Here's Hannah Mulvaney with a preview. The next episode is um, one that I did with a photographer called Britta Zuszynski. So the first time I met her, um, she was basically telling me a story about going undercover um, at a wildlife market with a camera in her handbag and I was like <laughs> you're awesome <laughs> like let's talk more um, and yeah she just kind of she was uh, I was only I was in my like early 20s at the time and kind of just getting into the world of environment and and just kind of starting my career and she um, was just a massive inspiration to me and I just thought she was just this like total badass 10 plus years later and she um, is now doing all of this amazing stuff with like helping young wildlife photographers get into the industry um, and also kind of uncovering um, lots of stuff to do with wildlife crime and, and all that kind of stuff so she's just a really interesting person uh, really quite inspirational as well for me anyway so it was really nice to kind of chat to her all those years later. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Serena Simons, Hannah Mulvaney, and me, Matt Podolsky. Music from this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website for a full list of credits, earthtohumanspod.com. <laughs>